Hi, I'm Joe Skinner, producer of the American Masters podcast. In today's bonus episode, I sat down to talk about jazz legend Miles Davis with musician Vince Wilburn Jr. and filmmaker Stanley Nelson. We're just trying to honor Miles to put every single thing that we can of who we are into it, the same way Miles put every single thing of who he was, you know, into his music and never settled. That was Miles, you know, he never settled. Stanley Nelson's a legend in his own right. The veteran filmmaker and MacArthur Genius Grant recipient has spent his career documenting pivotal moments in African-American history and culture. He's now turned the lens to Miles Davis in his newest documentary, American Masters Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool. For most people, Miles Davis was a larger-than-life figure who changed jazz music forever. But for Vince Wilburn Jr., he was just Uncle Miles. Vince is not only Miles Davis's nephew, but he was also his producer and drummer in the 1980s. Thank you both so much for coming in to talk. Vince, what's your earliest memory with Miles? When I was uh, five, six years old, um, the Auditorium Theater, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and he would come and um, come to Chicago to play. But back then, I was too young to know the magnitude of, of the man. And, and, and in those days, you could meet the uh, passengers at the gate. You didn't have to go to checking and security. So when we would meet Uncle Miles at the gate, going back to the car every five, six steps, people would stop. <laughs> I was like, Mom, why, that, why are they stopping Uncle Miles, you know? Because they, you know, take knowledge and say hi. So that, that stuck in my mind, you know. Then after seeing him on stage, and seeing him on, I, would, I, would, I would always stand in the wings. I would never want to sit in the audience with my parents. I could see the silhouette of Uncle Miles on stage, but the drums, man, just like, whoa, that's what I want to do. Is he the one that first got you involved yeah, in drumming? He, he told my mom if I was serious, he'd get an expensive kit, but we got a, we, she purchased a mail order kit, like a little cheap drum kit. And I, I went through it, then he purchased a kit for me. And Stanley, what's your first experience with Miles Davis? Um, my father was a, a big jazz fan, and uh, at one point he had all these 78 records, like hundreds of 78 records in, in, in these cabinets, and uh, some of them were Miles. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, as things go, at, at some point he threw out all the 78s, which would be great to have. But, you know, I, I just remember the 78s and him playing and Miles, and then... Um, when I when I was in high school, I started listening to Kind of Blue, and when I uh, went to college, I took my father's copy of Kind of Blue with me, and uh, I guess he got a new copy, but I, I took it, and, and uh, you know that was something that's been kind of an anchor, you know, all my life. I've listened to that to that album over and over again. Is that your favorite? I don't know if it's my favorite. Probably it is, but you know, I mean, I I, I love a lot of Miles's work. Um, one of the things that, that making the film um, did was, um, you know, kind of forced me to listen to a lot of different miles and, and, and fall in love with a lot of different groups that, that, you know, I had heard and listened to, but I had sat down and got really serious about listening to some of the music. What I really love about the film is just the way you really get a chance to see all the different phases that Miles goes through as a musician. Vince, can you speak to the creative process of working with him? He was one of the only artists that let the tape run because he said you can hear songs inside a song. And... Um, at the days in, we would he would leave and we would take the the cassettes or the day's work to to wherever he was staying, you know, department or in LA, to Malibu. Then he would listen. Then the next day he would change it into something else, you know. So it was just a creative, really creative 
process that probably other artists don't do. You know, you you going with with the with the song, with the track, with the drums, with the but no, he he wanted us to just play, and then he heard what he heard, and then he would, you know, put it all together. Let's listen to this excerpt from the film where we get to hear from Jimmy Cobb, another drummer who frequently collaborated with Miles Davis. And like Vince, he also took part in Miles' unique freeform process at the recording studio. I was probably the first one there because I had to set up the drum. So I had my drums, set them up, and waited till everybody else filed in. He just came in with uh, little notes that he had. He didn't even have sheet music for that. And the only thing he'd tell me was like, just swing, you know? Is it just swing? I didn't write out the music for Kind of Blue, but brought in sketches because I wanted a lot of spontaneity in the playing. I knew that if you've got some great musicians, they will deal with the situation and play beyond what is there and above where they think they can. The first part of So What? Do boom bang. Then Paul go into the, the bass saying, And here's musicologist Tammy Kernodal. On Kind of Blue, what he asked them to do was to think deeper about what kind of sound can you create. He said, I have these few ideas. Let's go. This approach to making music must have been incredibly liberating. I mean, Vince, could you talk about this process, and and when did you start working with Miles? 1979, when Man With A Horn. We had a band in Chicago, and he used to call him. My mom put the phone down and listen to us rehearse. And this went on for about three weeks every every day, you know. So one day, and he would critique the musicians, and he said, you know, one day he said, you guys want to make a record? And that record was Man With A Horn. He flew us to New York. And we were like, you know, Miles Davis, free room service. <laughs> we were kids, man, limos. I mean, the bill was so high. Dr. George Butler was head of the jazz department at, at Columbia. He was like, you guys got to stop eating so much. <laughs> so we, we were inviting our Chicago friends to live in New York. Everybody was coming to, to Sheridan Center. But it was, it was um, you know, Miles Davis, man. We rehearsed it at the Brownstone. He had all this gear come, S.I.R., Studio Instrument Reynolds delivered all this gear to his living room. It's cool. Yeah, this was, um, uh, you know, Vince is being modest, but this was kind of Miles' comeback from, from the hiatus. Um, and Vince was really instrumental in bringing Miles back you know, from, from that hiatus um, and starting to, to record again. That, this was his first recordings after that, right? That's right, that's right. Yeah, I guess I wanted to unpack that a little bit. How was he able to climb out of that dark period? You know, it's, it's, it's just, it was a slow process. But I think the music gave him energy, you know, because he just said at, at that retirement period, he didn't have anything to say. You know, but, you know, he, he, it's like a prize fighter. You know, when he was ready, he was ready. Yeah, one of the things that I found really fascinating about the, the hiatus period is, and I don't think anybody exactly says this in the film, but it's really interesting, is that Miles had been uh, uh, at the top recording at a high level for 30 straight years, mm-hmm. for 30 years. And, you know, I mean, he was tired, you know, and he said, you know, I, I, I need to recharge. Now, did he need to recharge with all the drugs and alcohol? <laughs> Probably not. But he didn't, you know, I mean, you can understand, you know, 
creating at that level for 30 years. And it's different than, you know, let's say you're a filmmaker or, you know, maybe a little bit different even from being a writer. You know, when you're a, a musician, especially a jazz musician, especially at that time, Miles was playing almost every night. I mean, for 30 years. He's playing every night, you know, and then going into the studio during the day and creating. And, you know, um, you know someone said, you know, maybe he was just tired. And, and, you know, we can understand that. And the touring. Yeah, the yeah, touring. Yeah. I mean, you know, anybody who's ever toured, you know, I mean, it's fun, but it's like it wears on your body. He's dealing with so many different kind of roadblocks in his life. And... I'm always asking myself again and again, what drives this man? You know, how does he keep it going? How does he keep making such brilliant music? What do you think was driving Miles Davis to create? I think it was the music. For for musicians, you know, um, music is, is something different than it is for you and me, you know? And I think that, that, you know, at the level that Miles was at, it's something even different than that. I mean, Miles couldn't help it, you know? Um, there's a scene in the film early on where Miles goes out as a kid with a trumpet into the woods and starts trying to imitate the animals, you know, you know, sound, the bird sounds on his on his trumpet. I mean, you know, who who does that? You know, um I, I think it was it, it was the, the the music and you know, um constantly just hearing hearing music in his head and and you know, um that drive to 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 change and, and that was who Miles was. Yeah, yeah, true. And he and he would you know, living with him and being around him, he, he would never sit still. He wouldn't sit still too long. In the course of a day, you know, he'd have the, 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 the uh, whatever he was working on, it was, if it was an album, he'd have that playing, sound down on the TV. If he wanted to cook something, then he'd go over to the kitchen. He was an excellent chef, um, sketching and painting. But it was never like he could never, I don't even, I never remember taking a nap, you know. You know, he'd change clothes, you'd look around, he'd have another outfit on. He'd say, I'm rehearsing my clothes, you know. But it's, to, 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 to witness this and to be around this, it's like, yeah. Miles Davis was just this incredibly active, creative force, just constantly making. And yet what makes him such a compelling figure is how complicated his story is, too. I mean, he was battling both these personal demons and societal forces, in this excerpt from the film, we hear about a night in the 1950s when Miles was assaulted by the NYPD, right in the middle of this massive success that he was having with Kind of Blue. We were working at Birdland, and uh, we got through a set, and uh, Miles came upstairs to smoke. I'm standing there in front of Birdland, and wet, because it's a hot, steaming, muggy night in August. I had just walked this pretty white girl named Judy out to get a cab. This white policeman comes up to me and tells me to move on. Ma, I say, why? He said, I'm, I'm smoking a cigarette. I'm working downstairs, I'm smoking a cigarette. And he was standing right by the sign with his name on it. M-I-L-E-S, M-I-L-E-S, Miles. That's me. Who are you? Kind of Blue has just come out. He is the talk of the town, and he is at the top of the marquee, top of his popularity. So the guy said, I don't care, you just can't stand it. So I said, well, I'm not moving. I just looked at his face real straight and hard, and I didn't move. Miles at that point was in such good shape, right, <laughs> that it was hard for him to actually get a hand on it. From out of nowhere, this white detective runs in and bam, 
hits me on the head. I never saw him coming. I received a telephone call that I should come down to the police station. And I saw his face. It was just terrifying. You know, this was, again, Miles being thrown up against the racism in the United States. Again, he grew up, you know, very wealthy in East St. Louis, but he was subjected to the racism in the United States. He's now, you know, um, the top jazz musician in the country with the album that's going to go on to be the best-selling jazz album of all, all times has just come out. But still, he's subjected to the whims, uh, you know, uh, of racist and violent cops in the United States. So, um, as Marcus Miller says in the film, you know, uh, later on in his life, Miles would just say, those god cops, you know, out of nowhere, you know, just, just it would just come back to him. Because constantly, um, that's part of America and what, you know, uh, uh, African-Americans have to be subjected to in America constantly is, is you never know when, you know, America, the evil, will throw itself in your face. You know, there's America the beautiful that throws itself in your face a lot, but there's also the other side of America that can jump up at any time and slap you in the head. And, and I think for Miles, you know, it was especially galling for him because that's who Miles was. Are there other instances, specific stories of Miles having to overcome this systemic racism in his career? Um, you know, we have a story that, that, that we don't use in the film where, that Francis talks about where they, uh, they're on a road trip somewhere and I think they're driving from L.A. to San Francisco or somewhere and they, they you know, he, he's driving one of his Ferraris or mm-hmm. something and they stop and, you know, Miles, you know, has her go into the hotel to, uh, to rent the room. You know, he just was, was like, I don't feel like going through some bull right now. You know, you go in and you rent the room. Because, you know, you never know what, what you, you would go through, you know. And, and that's, that's, you know, that's something that people don't understand, you know. Um, you know, I, I've tried to check in hotels where they're like, oh, no, we're all full up. And I'm like, I got a reservation. And they're like, oh, we can't find your reservation. Like, you know, we're all fooled up. And that's just, and that's today, you know. And, and so you could imagine what it was like in the 50s and 60s, you know, especially for, for a black man uh, riding, driving a Ferrari. You know, you get white folks who just resent that. A dark-skinned black man. A dark-skinned black man <laughs> who just resent that and, and, and feel like it's their duty to put you in your place, right. you know, like it's their it's their duty as a white person to put you in your place, um, and you know, Miles was subjected to that. People in the film say that Miles Davis was fighting a lot of internal demons. Um, he, you know, he struggled with addiction and, and sickle cell anemia and other kinds of ailments. Do you think the music that he made turned out the way it did, despite these challenges or because of these challenges? I think both. I mean, I think I think I think it's both. You know, I I think that um, you know Miles. I mean, we try to show in the film that 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 Miles was fighting through real physical pain. You know, for a lot for a lot the second half of his life, he's really in pain. You know, he talks about hip replacement, and I mean, and this is the early days of hip replacements. You know, where they give him a hip replacement, they take a bone, a, a, some kind of bone out of his shin and put it into his hip, and it doesn't work. And now one leg is longer than the other, and you know he has to get it done again. And and he's in real physical pain. He has uh, sickle cell anemia. He has all these kind of real ailments. Um, that that he suffers through, and they get worse. He gets, you know, he crashes his car, and that makes it worse. So there was physical, physical pain. So he's fighting through this for a lot of his, his life. But I think that that, as someone says in the film, you know, part of 
what Miles could do to show this other side of him that, that I think we all have, or most of us have, and Miles really had it, that tender side. You know, he could show that through his music, you know. Because Miles grew up in an era, especially for jazz musicians, especially, you know, for a black man in America, where it's hard, it's hard to show uh, tenderness, you know, I mean, you know, you, you know, like, you know, I was born here in Harlem and you're not supposed to show softness, you know, and, and but Miles could show it uh, through his music, you know, and, and he was able to do that. Yeah, every every now and then he would he would give you a hug or a kiss on the forehead or something, you know, so it was it was there, you know, especially with Aaron. I saw it a lot with his son, youngest son, Aaron, you know, take Aaron, you know, take him to Chicago. We'd have a break on the tour. Take him to, you know, take him to Chicago. Buy him some clothes. <laughs> you know, take him, you know, just raise the sun right. That tension between his rough side and his sensitive side is incredibly palpable. And I think it makes his story really complex. Stanley, how did you first get drawn into the project? And how did you decide to have Miles as a subject? Um, it, you know, I, I'm a Miles Davis lover. Um, you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I love jazz. I love Miles. but And I love the music. But I, I think that... Um, you know, Miles is a complicated character, and that's what makes a, a great film. You know, there are other jazz musicians who who are great, but they're not as complicated. You know, um, they're not, and and, and the, the record isn't as clear. You know, there there was so much great stills and music and footage and people to talk to and all those things with Miles. Was there a foundational text or piece of archival material that you relied on to construct the film? Um, so, so one thing that, that happened early on is, I, 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 this is my memory of it, I met Quincy Troop, who wrote the autobiography, at a party. And Quincy said, you know, look, I have all these tapes of Miles talking. That's how I wrote the autobiography, was by sitting there and talking to Miles and letting the tape run. And, you know, and so we arranged with Quincy, you know, to, to use the tapes, and this, this was actually Miles's voice. And we got the tapes, and, and we started trying to fashion, you know, a narrative with the tapes. But the problem was that they, they were taking with a little crappy tape recorder, you know, <laughs> sitting on the table. And, you know, they would order lunch <laughs> during, the, <laughs> during the interview, so they would be like, the doorbell would ring, and <laughs> They would, the Chinese food would come, and they'd be chomping on the Chinese food and talking around. And we and, and we, we struggle with those for months to try to make these things work. And then we said, you know, it just, I mean, I think it was the best decision that, that, that we made in the film was like, okay, this is not going to work. Let's see if we can then use his autobiography and, and other interviews that Miles did and get an actor to kind of voice Miles' words and use that as, as our text. Because by that point... Um, I was really committed to trying to have Miles kind of narrate his own story. And so that's what we did, and, and that worked out really well. But that that was part of this one, that we didn't want to have a standard narrator, you know, when Miles was born in 1926. <laughs> we didn't want that. Um, and we felt like that Miles could not could narrate his own story, and so we went from there. What did each of you guys find most inspiring about Miles Davis's life? The constant evolution, never looking back. You know, just always wanting to look forward. Man, he was always progressively thinking about hip-hop, thinking about Prince and collaborating with Prince and that type of thing, you know. So it's like, so that makes you want to form evolutions in your music or, or, your, or making films. You don't want to look back. It's good to be nostalgic in a sense, but I mean, I always want to look forward. I want to have a new car. I want to have new clothes. The fashion, the, the cars, the... the the forward thinking, you know, that's that's brilliant, you know. It's brilliant. And you heard it in the music. You know, like from 
Bird to Prince to, to hip hop, you know. Who, who else has done that? Who's played with Prince and Bird? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> you know, it's about, it says it all, you know. And the fact that Stanley, you know, Stanley reminds me a lot of the way he, he created this film, you know. You know, you, he, didn't, he only needs you for what he needs you for, and that's good, you know. He takes, he takes a bit of this, a bit of me, a bit, bit of Aaron, a bit of Cheryl, a bit of Herbie, a bit of, you know, and, he, and he, I, I knew he had it. And as my, I just, when, when, he, when he sent me the link, I, I cried and I called him and it was in the middle of the night because of the time difference. I live in California. <laughs> and he, I said, Stanley, this is so beautiful. Baby. I'm crying and tearing. He said, I'll call you tomorrow. I'm asleep. <laughs> but I was so excited, you know, because we didn't know what to, you know, once we signed the contract, Stanley, you know, did his thing. But I, as, he was, as he was interviewing everybody, I said, this is going to be a badass film. Because I saw how he, he was just, Okay, Vince, that's all I need. You know, talk to you later. I said, you want me to go with Quincy? No. You want me to go over to Quincy's house with you? No. <laughs> we'll call you. Want you? No, no. You know what I mean? It's, it's, he knew. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's African-American. I hate to, you know, it's, it's, I'm proud of that because you can't tell a story unless you live some of the things. You know, his dad was a dentist. You know, Uncle Miles' father was a dentist. You know, it's, it's that kind of par- it's parallels. And I didn't know that, and, and Stanley never said it, never mentioned it, never said it at the, the meeting with the family. You know, you, you know my dad was a dentist, too, because that wasn't important. <laughs> that it's, important it's important that his dad is a dentist. But it wasn't the selling point for us to say, oh, your dad was a dentist, too? Yeah, let's sign it. You know, I, I, I want to state that because the way he put it together was like, yeah, yeah. You know, like the team that we're going to get this damn... Uh, we're gonna win the, the championship, the NBA championship, because I got, I got Magic, I got Bill Russell, I got, I got a Dr. J, I've got, you know, all the cat. I'm old school, so. You know. <laughs> but you got the, you got the right team, and he did it so like, you know, elegantly. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was a, it, for me, it was just an incredible honor to make this film, and we're just trying to, to, to honor miles, you know, and to knock it out of the park and to put every single thing that we can, you know, of who we are into it, the same way Miles put every single sure. thing of who he was, you know, into his music and that's what we were trying to do. Um constantly, you know, always and, and, and never settle, you know. I mean that's that was Miles, you know, he never settled. You know, Miles was like, you know, I deserve the best, you know. And and uh, you know, I mean that's that's what we wanted, you know, for this film. You know, we deserve the best. We're we're going for. We we had no limitations on the music that we used. You know, we just used it. I don't think there's anything at all that 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 we found that we could that we that we wanted that we didn't use, in terms of music, in terms of footage, in terms of stills. We used any, everything we we wanted. You know, and, and somebody asked at a screening, you know, um, you know, what'd you leave on the cutting room floor? And I was like, I don't know, because it's it's on the cutting room floor now. It's gone. I don't I don't think like that. You know, I can't think about what what I don't have, because you know, the film is is what it is, and and I'm I'm very very happy with what it is. Well, congratulations on such a well told story. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks a lot. Yep. You can stream American Masters Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, right now on pbs.org slash American Masters. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by me, Joe Skinner. 
and is co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a week for our next regular episode of the American Masters podcast.